Buenazo. So we'll continue now for about a half an hour, going further in this presentation of mindfulness of breathing from Asanga. I have to say these, this afternoon session is going to be mostly for sowing seeds for the long term. Uh, if you are a farmer, you might have your little vegetable garden where you plant seeds for tomatoes, and I think they come up like in two months, really short, so like our two months. So you really expect to get something nice to eat in a very short time. Um, but if you're, f- if you're planting an orchard, that might take five or ten years. And if you're planting seeds for lumber, that takes 20 years. And so this might take a little while. We're sowing seeds, but this will not be tomatoes. Be more like your lumber. Okay? Because now we'll see that Asanga, following exactly in the footsteps of the Buddha, with his 16 phases of mindfulness of breathing as a complete path to achieving liberation, this is what Asanga turns his attention to now. And so, we'll just follow through this, and then we'll get, to get back to our practice, which will be something really practical pertaining to our experience now. But I think it might be helpful for sowing the long-term seeds. So, when one is thoroughly trained, we now we go on to thorough training by way of 16 aspects, or 16 phases of this mindfulness of breathing. One, one who is thoroughly trained in the four realities, or the four noble truths, has eradicated the attributes that are to be, dispelled, to be dispelled by the path of seeing. All right. In other words, you're doing pretty well. You're up there. You've already achieved path of seeing. For such a person, those that are to be dispelled by the path of meditation still remain. Okay. Definitely for the manana manana. In order to eradicate them, one thoroughly trains by way of 16 aspects. What are the 16 aspects? So we're going to see how the, he weaves this all into mindfulness of breathing, which is quite elegant. So here it is. One practices mindfully inhaling, mindfully noting the breath being inhaled. One practices mindfully exhaling, mindfully noting the breath being exhaled. So far, so good. Then inhaling, one authentically experiences first, long, secondly, and short breaths, and thirdly, the entire body, and authentically experiencing the entire body when practices noting, noting the breath being, being inhaled. So he just went through three phases there in terms of inhalation. So this is, this is going to be kind of, this is very classic a Buddhist setting forth in a very systematic way. Exhaling when authentically experiences long, number one, and short breaths, number two, and the entire body, number three, and authentically experiencing the entire body when practices noting the breath being exhaled. Okay? So that's, there, we're back to the shamatha practice. And it is, I do find it interesting here that he makes no reference to experiencing the whole body of the breath as, as Buddha Gosa does. So it's a different interpretation there. One is the whole body of the breath. But now, as you recall, he's speaking of the exhalation, inhalation, the interim, but not just breathing into the cavity down here in the region of the belly, but also all of the pores in that subtle breath, breathing through all the pores. So I think he's taking the Buddha very literally. He's not putting any square brackets in the whole body of the breath. No, just the whole body. So it's interesting. And again, no reference to the acquired sign, no reference to <coughs> counterpart sign. Okay? And then upon wonderfully refining the bodily formation, now this is the fourth phase in the Buddha's core teaching, the, the initial teaching on mindfulness of breathing, Breathing in long, breathing in out long, breathing in out short, experiencing the whole body, and then calming, refining, subduing, soothing, pacifying. 
the entire bodily formation. That's it, and that's the end of shamatha. So that's what he's referring to here. Inhaling upon wonderfully refining the bodily formation. That's his whole system here. One practices noting the inhalation upon wonderfully refining the bodily formation. In other words, this wonderfully refining, this is settling into a state of really profound equilibrium. Real equilibrium, deep equilibrium. So that's fourth. That's 4A, and 4B is exhaling upon wonderfully refining the bodily formation. One practices noting the exhalation upon wonderfully refining the bodily formation. It's certainly redundant in English, and it is in Sanskrit, so maybe I should clean it up in English, but that's what the Sanskrit and Tibetan say. We move on, so we've just covered four out of 16. Let's move on. Five. 5A, inhaling, authentically experiencing joy. Now, this is pritti, one of the five dhyana factors. Okay? Authentically experiencing joy, or pritti, authentically experiencing happiness, sukha, and so I'll probably tra- mis- uh, translate as well-being. Well-being, I think, is a bit closer. Otherwise, joy and happiness sound like the same. But authentically experiencing happiness, authentically experiencing the formations of the mind. That's seven. And then eight, and upon wonderfully refining the, fo- refining the formations of the mind. That's eight. One practices noting the inhalation upon wonderfully refining the formations of the mind. So this is kind of a build-up. You're authentically experiencing, which means you're seeing it as it is, Without, of the, without any of the delusional overlay, you're attending to exactly these dhyana factors that are arising in the course of your experience of dhyana, or at least access to the first dhyana. So the joy, the genuine, the genuine happiness or well-being, then the formations of the mind that arise in that constellation of formations arising, and then the refining of the same, like refining against this equilibrium, this calming, this soothing, experiencing all of these, and when, it, when practices noting the inhalation during that refinement, that equilibrium of the formations of the mind. That's five through seven. And that's for the inhalation, and then for the exhalation, it's exactly the same. Exhaling upon, wonderfully, uh, exhaling upon wonderf- wonderfully refining the formations of the mind, when practices noting the exhalation upon refi- refining the formations of the mind. We've just covered eight out of 16. So moving along quickly here. This is our hot ship in one day, or actually our hot ship in half an hour. Now we move on to 9, 9a. Inhaling, authentically experiencing the mind, bringing exceptional joy to the mind, concentrating the mind. Now there's another jnana factor, concentrating that mind, that single, single-pointedness of mind, and liberating the mind. So the concentrating, that's the jnana. Liberating, now we're deep into Vipassana territory. Doing all of this, authentically experiencing the mind, bringing exceptional joy to the mind, concentrating the mind, and liberating the mind. That's 9 through 12. One practices noting the mind's liberation and the inhalation. And then the same thing for exhalation. Exhaling, authentically experiencing the mind, bringing exceptional joy to the mind, concentrating the mind, and liberating the mind. One practices noting the mind's liberation and the exhalation. So now we cover through 12. Halfway, no, three-fourths of the way through. Now we go on, 13, inhaling, beholding impermanence, okay, one of the three marks of existence, beholding the eradication of obscurations. Now before, through the practice of shamatha, you subdue the obscurations, you make them go dormant, so they're not really bugging you much. If they come up at all, as Tsongkhapa said, even in between sessions, once you've achieved shamatha, 
if the obscurations, the mental afflictions come up, that is, they're not eradicated. They may come up. But if they do come up, number one, they come up infrequently, not nearly so frequently as before. And when they do come up, they just don't have much power. They come up and they're kind of like, yeah, like the heart's gone out of them. And so they just don't have that power to grip you like they did previously. That's, that's through dhyana, that's through shamatha. But now we're in Vipassana territory. We're not talking about subduing now. We're talking about eradication. That no matter what you encounter, they just, the seeds are burnt. You're just burning them. So they just, they cannot arise ever again. And in Buddhism, ever is a very big word. So beholding impermanence, beholding the eradication of obscurations, beholding freedom from attachment. Now this is very deep freedom. If you achieve shamatha, you're really at least temporarily free of attachment to the desire realm. He's talking about freedom to all realms of samsara. Desire, form, and formless. In other words, really free. Beholding freedom that is your seeing. You're seeing your own freedom, freedom from attachment, and beholding the cessation of the aggregates. Okay? Now, that was 16, by the way. So 13, beholding impermanence. 14, beholding the eradication of obscurations. 14, beholding freedom from attachment, and that means all levels of attachment. And 16, beholding the cessation of the aggregates. One practice is noting the occurrence of, the, of cessation and the inhalation. There it is. That's arhatship. And that's for the inhalation, arhatship on the exhalation, exhaling, beholding impermanence, beholding the eradication of obscurations, beholding freedom from attachment, and beholding the cessation of the aggregates when practice is noting the occurrence of cessation and the exhalation. So there it is. Those are the 16. What is the classification of those 16 points? If one observes the four practices one achieves the four applications of mindfulness. In order to eradicate the remaining fetters, one begins to focus the attention on the object of the inhalation and exhalation. Thus it is said, one practices mindfully inhaling, mindfully noting the inhalation. So there is the, the first line in the Buddha's 16-phase instruction on mindfulness of breathing. When, when focus, when, and now one. When focusing on the inhalation or exhalation, so here's, here's actually the first one. When focusing on the inhalation or exhalation, if a, if a long inhalation occurs, one practices noting that a long breath is inhaled. If a long exhalation occurs, one practices noting that a long breath is exhaled. So those were the first two. Then secondly, when focusing on the interim, so now here's a point that we don't, I've not seen anywhere else outside of a Sangha, so this Indo-Tibetan tradition. When focusing on the interim, inhalation or exhalation. If a short breath, now this is interesting, now it's a short breath. If a short, so he's relating the short breath with this interim exhalation, inhalation. If a short breath is inhaled, one practices noting the short inhalation. If a short breath is exhaled, one practices noting the short exhalation. So there's the second out of 16. Inhalate, now the third, inhalation and exhalation are of long duration while interim inhalation and exhalation are of short duration. So he just clarified that one in a way I've never seen in the Theravada tradition. One observes and recognizes them in the manner in which they occur. When one is intently focused upon the entrance of inhalation and exhalation into the minute cavities of the pores of the body, one authentically experiences the entire body. And when a breath is inhaled, one practices authentically experiencing the entire body and noting the inhalation. 
If a breath is exhaled while authentically experiencing the entire body, one practices authentically experiencing the entire body and noting the exhalation. So he's given now his gloss, his explanation of what what is meant here, not the entire body of the breath, the whole duration of the breath, but now he's he's made it very clear. And that is you're experiencing this, how do you say, the entire body that is the breath going through all the, all the pores of the body. One experiences, so I'll just read that one part, part again. When one is intently focused upon the entrance of inhalation and exhalation into the minute cavities of the pores of the body, in other words, there it is, pores all over the surface, one authentically experiences the entire body. And when a breath is inhaled, one practices authentically experiencing the entire body and noting the inhalation. So that's his take on experiencing the whole body. And then what follows, from, follows after that, of course, is this calming, this whole setting, settling into equilibrium. I'll go ahead and read that. I haven't, I haven't polished this next little section, but I'm going to read this and then we'll stop. This is the fourth. So if you just go back to the core teachings on mindfulness of breathing as a shamatha practice, here we go to the fourth and final, the, the next 12 being all of the pashana. When the inhalation and interim inhalation when the inhalation and interim exhalation have ceased, there is an absence of inhalation and exhalation, and, as one, and one is focused on this circumstance of the absence of inhalation and exhalation. When the exhalation and interim exhalation... I'm gonna, yeah, as I said, I have not polished this one. I'm going to put a little asterisk there. because I think that's probably a little typo. I think it should be when the, when the inhalation and inter, interim inhalation have ceased. There is an absence, but I'll check this. Okay? As I said, I haven't checked it. I'm just going to read one paragraph and we're finished. When the, exhal- when the exhalation and interim, and this is why, the very next line reads, when the exhalation and interim exhalation have ceased, and when the inhalation and inter- interim inhalation have not yet occurred, there is an absence of exhalation and inhalation. When one is focused on the vacuous circumstance of their cessation due to their absence, if a breath is inhaled upon wonderfully refining the bodily formation, one practices noting the inhalation upon wonderfully refining the bodily formation. If, breath, if a breath is exhaled upon wonderfully refining the bodily formation, one practices noting the exhalation upon wonderfully refining the bodily formation. Moreover, as a result of devotion to this practice, cultivation of it, and frequent repetition. There occur rough inhalations and exhalations whose contact is painful for one who is not thoroughly trained. On the other hand, for those who are thoroughly trained, there occur gentle breaths whose contact is pleasant. Thus it is said that when one exhales upon wonderfully refining the bodily formation, one practices noting that one exhales upon wonderfully refining the bodily formation. So we'll stop there for today. It's only a couple of more pages a couple of pa- in, in the whole presentation. Uh, I'm going to probably mention this again tomorrow morning, but I'll mention briefly now, too. I think I was a little bit too stingy with pretty this morning uh, when I was talking about it being way up there in stage seven. Well, it is up on stage seven. Quite unadorned, radiant, clear, very blissful. Um, but we don't have to wait until then, and it's not kind of just keep on, how was I saying, like being cheerleaders for the, for the practice you know, four obs- five obscurations really, really suck. Shamatha, yay. Five obscurations suck. Shamatha, yay. You know, with the discursive meditation? I mean, there's a place for that. But the engine does start getting turning over before the seventh stage. I mean, 
A lot of you figured that one out, not figured it out. You've already experienced that for yourself. It's a simple thing. I'm going to make this dissension, and just for the sake of the recording uh, and the podcast, I'm going to, say, I'm going to give the short re- version of this tomorrow morning. But let's draw this distinction between sukha, sense of well-being, and pritti, so joy or bliss. I'm translating here as joy. And sukha, I think well-being really is the best translation. And that is that it is that contentment. You know, you're just sitting down and you're, just, you're, ha- you're happy, you're content to be doing so. They're just kind of, I think the words are quite clear. There is a sense of well-being and it carries over in between sessions because there is this, this overall greater equilibrium, a balance. The mind is healthier, the mind is calmer, it's freer of rumination. And so we bring this to the session and while in the session, just an overall ambience of a sense of well-being. It's kind of diffuse. It doesn't have a real sharp point to it. But then there's something a number of you, not all, but it will come in time, but a number of you have already experienced this. You've shared this with me in, your, in, in our one-on-one meetings. And that it's a simple point. I'm starting to enjoy the practice. Not just an overall sense of well-being, but when I'm doing the practice, I kind of like it. You know, That's pretty. That's pretty. That's joy. You're in, in, enjoying the practice? Well, you find joy in the practice. And we're not talking here about inconceivable ecstasy or bliss or anything like that. It's just that, hmm, I'm looking forward to the next session. I like, I like doing this. So it does have more of a point to it. But it's not hedonic pleasure like, oh, I wish I could find a breath so it would make me happy. you know. But it is an enjoyment in the practice itself. Okay? And it starts out quiet. As the Buddha said, this leads to a peaceful state, a sublime state, an ambrosial dwelling. It's kind of like this crescendo. Uh, first, a little bit of peace and quiet kind of feels good, even though it's not blissful and all of that. But peace and quiet, quiet opposed to just being assaulted by rumination or just all the junk of the mind, just some peace and quiet, I enjoy that. You know? And that's how it starts. And then... As, the, as you gradually move along the, along the stages, the mind becomes more refined, settling into more and more of an equilibrium. Then from that sense of peacefulness, serenity, rises what the Buddha can call a sublime state. A sublime state. Now the sharpness of pritti, of joy, is getting a bit stronger. You know, you really like it. And then it goes from there to an ambrosial dwelling. Well, then you, you really don't want to stop because you're really enjoying this much more than anything else. And after a while, too, not at the early stages, but after a while, you, you say, okay, here, if, if somebody, would you like to continue the practice, or would you like to see this new blockbuster movie that's just come out, and it's getting rave reviews? You know. <laughs> Back to the meditation cushion. You know that would be pleasurable, probably a good movie, but overall, you'd rather do this. Because you actually enjoy it more. You enjoy it more. You don't need that external stimulation. You say, no, I think I'll, I'll stay home and drink from my own well, so to speak. So that's when the pretty is really kicking in. That may take a while. That may take a while to get to that point. You'd actually rather meditate than watch a really good movie? Okay. That's, part, that's some pretty steep competition there. Right. But that's where it goes. So I overstated a, a bit this morning. I said, I think when I said, you know, up there at stage seven and until then, you know, really try to rev it up with discursive meditations. I, I, I stand by everything I said by the discursive meditations. I think everything I said, I believe, was true. But it does also start self-generating. 
It does actually come out of the practice itself, and you shouldn't have to wait weeks, months, years, and so forth for that to happen. When it does happen, when you really start enjoying the practice, then that does, in fact, act as a natural antibody, a natural remedy for excitation, which is desire-driven. Desire for what? Desire for something else. You're not going to have rumination like, gee, I wish I could practice shamatha. <laughs> when you're practicing shamatha. You know, that's not going to bother you. And so it's going to overcome uh, the excitation. It'll just kind of smoothly edge out anxiety, guilt, low self-esteem, all that rubbish. Because it's, you know, what do I have to feel low, se- low self-esteem for? I mean, I'm okay here. I've done some rotten things in the past. Okay, try to purify them. But here, there's nothing rotten. It's all good. Nothing to be guilty about, nothing to be anxious about. If I die this way, good way to die. If I live this way, good way to live. So, no downside. Then you can be happy. Okay. On that note, let's just go right back to our own practice, where we live. Settle your body in its natural state, at ease, comfortable, still and vigilant. Now let's linger in this phase of settling the respiration and its natural rhythm. As our mindfulness becomes clearer, introspection more subtle. We may more clearly note the invasion into the respiration process of control, of effort, on subtler and subtler levels. If you're in the supine position, your posture is fine. If you're sitting, see that your chest is wide open, your diaphragm easily expanding, your belly easily expanding, no constraint, sitting at attention. 
So when the breath flows in, there's nothing to inhibit its flow. And likewise, when it flows out. As the breath does flow out, with body, speech, and mind, with body, breath, and mind, release in every way and release completely. Until there's nothing more to release, even the subtlest thoughts have been released so they dissolved into the space of the mind. The last vestiges, vestiges of the breath released to empty. And your body is soft, as relaxed as you can possibly allow. with a very quiet mind, pin drop silent, approach the very end of the exhalation so that when it finally comes to an end, runs out of gas, nothing more to go. You know it exactly when it ends. And if there is an interim exhalation, You're aware of just how long it takes, how long it lasts. And when the breath does flow in like the tide, you're breathing lucidly. You are there right at its inception right at the first beginning of that inhalation. Without pulling it in or with, and without obstructing it in any way, you simply watch it flow in. Watch it flow in until it comes to the end, whether it's a short or long duration, but you note the very end of the inhalation. And if there's an interim inhalation, you note its duration.
you're right there when the exhalation begins. Releasing deeply all the way through. Tend to the long in and out breaths and to the short interim in and out breaths. Tend to the entire body. The flow of prana is related to the in and out breath throughout the entire system.
and this way settle the entire bodily formation or all the formations of the body in a state of more and more serene equilibrium, refining the bodily formation. This is a simple path to shamatha. Now, while mindfully attending to the in and out breath, direct your attention to the skanda, the aggregate of form. And simply recognize it for what it is, free of all of the conceptual elaborations and projections that we superimpose upon it. flow in a stream of pure perception, uncontaminated by preconceptions. while sustaining the flow of mindfulness of the in and out breaths, within this context, direct your attention to the rising of feelings, the factors of origination, the factors of disillusion. Closely observe the feelings as feelings in the body and mind.
attend to the arising of the skanda of recognition. With metacognition, note what you are discerning, what you're recognizing. One mental factor noting another. While sustaining the flow of mindfulness of the respiration, direct your attention to the space of the mind and the mental formations that arise from moment to moment. So we are embracing a type of multitasking here, which has been discussed before. Rest in the flow of mindfulness of the respiration while attending closely to the arising and passing of mental formations observing them as they are. Continuing to sustain the flow of mindfulness of the breathing. Now draw your awareness right into the core, focusing your attention upon consciousness itself. Closely attending to its nature. Is it permanent, permanent or impermanent? Is it a self or not a self? Does it have an owner or no owner? 
Attend closely. As we have drawn the awareness right into its core, now release it out into all of the six sense fields, out into space, while gently sustaining the flow of mindfulness of the breath and attending to this whole matrix of dependently related events arising in all of the six domains of experience.
Olaso. I was reflecting a little bit on these many cases in the Pali Canon of people hearing simply a simple line or a verse, like Shariputra listening to Asaji, just saying the, the causes of causally generated things, the Tathagata has explained, and their cessation to thus the teachings of the great sage. Hearing that phrase, then Shariputra immediately realizes nirvana and becomes a stream enterer. And then he just says the same phrase, exactly just, just says the same, exactly the same words, and then to Moggallana Buddha, and Moggallana Buddha immediately realizes nirvana. And there are many cases like that. There are many cases like that throughout the Buddha's lifetime. Uh, he'll just give them a short little Dharma talk, and they immediately become Sotapan. Or in Bahia's case, achieve not Arhatship. And one, one can wonder, well, what about shamatha? What about practicing Vipassana? What about the whole, all the stages of the path? How is it they're so lucky? You know, was it the intonation? <laughs> what was it, you know? And I'm going to give a, I think the only reasonable explanation is from a traditional Buddhist perspective. There may be others, but I don't know what they might be. But from the traditional Buddhist perspective, it's quite clear, and there, there's a lot of indication, this is not speculation, that for these very close disciples, like Shariputra, Shariputra Malgayayana in Sanskrit, I mean, it was an enormous amount, and for Ananda also, an enormous amount of merit of practicing from lifetime to lifetime to lifetime prior to that one. This was just the harvest time. Many, many lifetimes. Right? And for those five, if you read the Jataka accounts, read various sutras, those five disciples that practiced with him who be, be, became his first five disciples in Sadhana, they'd had many, many, many lifetimes encountering Buddha in his prior lifetimes. Lots and lots of contact. Lots and lots of practice. Okay? And so there, it's just harvest time. I mean, these were seeds that were sown not 20 years ago. These are 20,000, 20, 200,000. Who knows how many lifetimes ago and just cultivating the merit, deepening, deepening, deepening. And of course, it's not just waiting one day to have realization. They're having all kinds of realization along the way. And so when I thought about it, this occurred. It's only an analogy. Maybe it's a bad one, but there it is. It's my analogy. But just focusing on that, the causes of causally originated phenomena that the Tathagata has explained, the cessation to... That's the, and, and their cessation as well. That's the teaching of the great say. You know what it struck me like? Is being hypnotized into deep somnambulist state, deep, deep hypnosis. Like you don't even know who you are anymore. And some people are very prone to that. They can be, so I saw this, it was a, a performance. But some y- young guy, he, w- he was very susceptible, very, how do you say, uh, could easily be drawn into a very deep hypnotic state. And he was, so he was. And then the stage performer, the magician, but he's, he's a tr- genuine hypnotist, he told this young man that he was a kangaroo. And lo and behold, you could see he slipped right into the persona of kangaroo, and you see him, he put up his, his paws in a very cute way, you know, and then hopped around the stadium, and then, uh, he was happy kangaroo too. I saw he had a big grin on his face. And hopped around all the way around the auditorium and hopped up on the stage, you know, almost like a cartoon character. That's probably the major, cart- major kangaroos he'd seen. And then, when it was all, but for that time, he really, as far as we can tell, he really thought he was a kangaroo. His previous identity seemed to have just slipped out. Right? And another identity came in. I'm a happy kangaroo. You know? And then, what, but, but what did hypnotist say? When you hear me count one to three, or whatever it is, when you hear me say jackrabbit, 
when you hear me, you know, when you hear me say this, you will awaken and you'll feel refreshed, and then you either will or will not remember anything that's gone by. And they can they can make that that suggestion as well. They may not remember anything, or they, they may just slip in, and you'll remember everything you've just been experiencing. Either way, they can slip that in. But when I say jackrabbit, then you will come out slowly, and you'll feel refreshed, and you'll come out of hypnotic trance. Right? And then they do, of course. Right? Well, that's an analogy. And when I say the causes of causally generated things that the Tagata has shown, you will come out of your trance, and you'll feel very refreshed, and, you'll re- and you, will re- you will realize nirvana. Thus are the teachings of the great sage. It strikes me as kind of being like that, that there was this tremendous momentum from past lives, from past lives. Well, let's say Shariputra and his, his childhood friend, Malgayayana. But when they were born, did they, they, they immediately say, hey, buddy, let's find the Buddha? No. They, went off and f- they, they became quickly disillusioned with samsara. They, they went off to another teacher, Sanjaya, I think his name was, a skeptic. They hung out with him, not satisfied. Then they made their decision, okay, let's split up and so forth. But they, it was as if they forgot who they were. And then they hear jackrabbit. Or, I'm sorry, the causes of causally generated things. And they wake up to nirvana. I think it's more like that. Because just hearing those verses, that's not vipassana. That's just hearing somebody say a really commonplace truth. Yes, the Buddha did teach the causes of causally generated things and their cessation too. Those are the teachings of the great sage. Now, what did he actually say? Oh, we don't need to need that. You, could, you already figured it out. So quite interesting. And we see in Dzogchen, where Dujum Lingba repeatedly comments that there are people, the simultaneous people, and they just hear the teachings on Dzogchen. And they just immediately have realiza- realization of Rikpa. Boom. They become vidyadharas by hearing the teachings. That was no shamatha, no vipassana. But what does this imply? That they're just lucky they won, they won the Dzogchen lottery? No, it's the same thing with Shariputra and Malkalyaya. Tremendous momentum coming in. And when you hear the teachings of Dzogchen, you will come out of your hypnotic trance of thing you are, thinking you are a sentient being. And you will realize who you are. And you will, you will wake up and realize your actual identity as Rikpa. Very close. And one more point in Dzogchen. There it is, the pinnacle, the ninth jhana, the highest, the most sublime, and I really think it is. But it's very easy to be intimidated by that, thinking, but I look at my meditation, I don't think I'm a pinnacle kind of guy. Where's the lowest of the low? Where's for the really you know, retarded kindergarten kids? I think that's maybe where I can get in and not get a failing grade. You know? And Dujum Lingba's response to that, because that quang comes up in the Vajra Essence, the text that I've translated in its entirety, uh, the, qu- the question comes up. And he answers it and says, look, as he, after he's already given some introduction to Dzogchen, and he's teaching shamatha. And he says, you know, once you've heard these teachings, as you listen to them, if there just spontaneously arises faith, not blind faith, let's call it intuition, I mean, from some core place, not just I like that theory, but from a very deep place, call it faith, call it intuition, call it confidence, call it a profound inner core resonance, whatever you want to call it. You either have experienced it or you haven't. But if you feel that, if you feel this profound affinity resonance 
like feeling this is my ultimate home. I really want to engage in this practice. Then he said, you've just passed the test. That was the entrance examination. Don't look for anything else. Don't look for any outside or, you know, from a teacher or divination or astrology or anything else. Don't look elsewhere. Don't worry about it. Don't second-guess yourself. If you really have that longing, that affinity, that resonance, that natural, spontaneous faith in the teachings, and you really wish to apply yourself to them, so then consider yourself qualified. That's it. That's all there is to it. And now go for it. And then it leads you right into shamatha, onto vipassana, and onto the path. And he said, it is possible that people may stumble upon Dzogchen teachings. That they just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Jungo Kinsu Rinpoche or someone like that, or nowadays Jato Rinpoche or the other fine lamas teaching. They may be teaching and, and some, some person hears about it. said, oh, Jato Rinpoche, I've heard he's really great. Let's go and let's see if we can, I can get in. Maybe I'll slip in. And maybe you slip in. And Dujum Lingba says, you know, even if you attend teachings on Dzogchen by profoundly realized master, if you're not ready for them, your body will be where the teachings are and your mind will be thousands of miles away. They'll just pass right through. You won't even know. You, you, just, you won't get it. Or if you feel a little stirring, okay, I, I'm kind of into that. I kinda, I kinda, I'm kind of into that. I kind of like, you know. You'll pick it up and then the novelty will wear off pretty quickly. It'll fade out. It won't have any staying power. You won't stay. And it's not like you're bad, it's just you're not ready yet. And he does comment, for Dzogchen, nobody's ready. Unless you do have a lot of momentum. Unless you already, from past lives, already have some foundation. The basic teachings, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana. Unless you have a lot of momentum, these teachings won't connect. They won't connect. But then how do we know, you know what our past lives were? We don't. That's that. That's easy. We don't. But then just go right to your heart again. This Dzogchen is so intuitive. But if you find, no, but I'm really, really drawn to it. Good. And then you'll see for yourself. You'll see for yourself whether that attraction, that affinity and so forth, whether it just kind of withers on the vine and you get an interest in other things, you wander off, or it just has staying power and doesn't leave. If it doesn't leave, then simply con- consider yourself qualified. Go for it. Oh, yeah. So we have a number. looks like five or six. Five or six questions here. We have a half an hour. So here's the first one. Asanga, mindfulness of breathing. Has prana the same quality in breath, out breath? That's for you to see. Sure. It's, um, where's Paul? Where's Paul? There's Paul. Um, the, the best way to answer that question is through your own practice. Clearly, uh, there's going to be some difference. I mean, the d- difference between flowing in and flowing out. But apart from that, qualitatively, uh, it, I, it, there's nothing wrong with the question. But I would say, imagine, imagine that you're a, a, ch- a chocolate connoisseur. And I tell me, tell, tell me, Paul, is there a difference between Belgian dark chocolate and really f- high-quality German dark chocolate? <laughs> I, I want to know this conceptually. Because I'm really not interested in eating chocolate. But... I'd really like to know. Is there any real difference between Belgian? And what about the Swiss dark chocolate? Is there any difference? And the answer is, eat it or shut up. <laughs> it's a good question. But the way to find out the answer is just go back to your practice. Okay, I'll read one more, then we'll go to the floor. This is from Elizabeth. Oh, yeah. Do you think 
that age is a factor to consider with achieving shamatha. Once over 65, the body is in decline. Well, one could be more generous. One could say after 20, your body's in decline. <laughs> so too is the brain. Therefore, less stamina, especially for long periods, over two, two to three hours, become more difficult physically, even supine, because of need to pee, etc. Yeah. So that's a perfectly good question. Um, and it deserves a serious answer. And the serious answer is two. And that is, sure, 65. 65 still, I mean, there are some really very feeble, ill, decrepit 65-year-olds. And then there are others who are still mind clear in the 90s. We just know that's true. So it's not homogenous at all. I mean, Stephen Jobs, you know, he, was only, he wasn't even 60, dying of cancer. And that's not, that's not uncommon. People having strokes when they're not all that old. And then Alzheimer's, that can, that can set in quite early. I think 60s for sure. And then so forth and so on. So the point here is there's just a lot of variety. So a lot of variety. But just overall, will we have the strength, the stamina, and so forth that we had when we were in our 20s and 30s? No. Um, uh, so, no, that's true. Um, but are there cases? Are there cases of people well beyond their 60s, into 70s, even 90s, having very fruitful, profoundly transformative, and even liberating Dharma practices? The answer is yes. It's right there in the sutras. It's not debatable. Even into the 90s, uh, people starting then and, having, and achieving liberation. You'll find it in the sutras. So 65 is still a spring chicken. <laughs> Certainly possible. So on the one hand, uh, overall less vitality, sure. But, you know, so you need to pee. Pee mindfully, come back to cushion. <laughs> it's a big deal. You know? uh, so there's that. But there's, so that's so, a little bit less vitality, sure, all of that. But there's another aspect of that. And that is um, maturity. Just getting older. Especially if one has been getting older while practicing dharma. There can be a psychological maturation, hopefully there has been, a spiritual maturation, uh, things that we may have been really caught up in and have been very, very important to us when we're in our 20s and 30s. Not for everybody, but for many people. Number one, sex. It can be really just a powerful biological force uh, you know, when we're younger. And then overall, again, not homogenous, that can calm down you know, when you get older. And it's just one less distraction. Sex is only one of them. But also, um, what, do other what will other people think of me? When we're in our 20s and 30s, that may be pretty big. Get older. Uh, who gives a darn? I'm, I keep my PG-related language. Who gives a darn? <laughs> people think I'm a schmuck. Okay, have a nice day. People think I'm a superhero. Whatever. I don't know anybody who does, but you know, if that crops up, you know, have a nice day too. I, we all have our delusions. You know, but you know, to get old, it just doesn't matter much anymore. Having enough to eat, shelter, clothing—sure, that's that's good. That's a concern. But just kind of getting more grounded, more realistic, less less caught up by the um, novelty and all of that, because we've just seen more. So that can be an advantage. Greater positioning for finding contentment, having few desires. Now, if one, a number of you are there, in a stage of your life where you're retired. Fewer activities and concerns, at least that are imposed upon you from outside. 
when you're in 30s or 40s and maybe have children, you've got to work. You've got to take care of your kids. You have to make sure they get an education. Take care of them. That's your job. Right? So you can't have very few activities and concerns. Not to take care of your family at the same time. Make a living. Whereas if you're retired, kids are grown up or no kids, you're set. Right? So there, I think it all balances out, frankly. It all balances out. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, anything from the floor? We'll start with Tracy. Microphone coming. If there's a microphone someplace. You look like one of the Santa's little helpers. <laughs> You're doing a good job. Yes, my little elf. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I just ask you, Alan, the last session we did, yeah. um, you mentioned mindfulness and then allowing the six senses to... So yeah. What do you do with that? Do you just allow them to arise? Sure, and then, you know, whatever discerning wisdom you've been able to cultivate in terms of recognizing the impermanent as impermanent, the non-self as non-self, observing the factors of origination, factors of dissolution, all that we've been, uh, that I've talked about in the afternoon sessions thus far, just as much discernment as you can bring to whatever's arising. You know? But the whole six senses, I find that it's a bit w busy. Well, that's, that's life. <laughs> you think it's busy here, wait until you get back to London. <laughs> this is quiet here. <laughs> it is busy. <coughs> And this is where it's helpful to have already achieved shamatha, so the mind is so grounded and distilled that you can see the, the distinct events arising, but also their interdependence. Yeah. So, but just mostly relax and simply attend to what's arising from moment to moment. Okay? So you don't force it to... Just generally speaking, if the answer is, should you force it or not, I think you know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay? Can I ask a sure. second question? Just um, with Asanga's text? Asanga's, yeah. I'm just wondering um, why he's focusing so much on the breathing, like so refined. <laughs> because this is a section on the breathing. <laughs> it's a big text. And this is 14 pages of a big text. It's like 500 pages. And so it's like going to a cookbook and looking for the sections on making muffins. You say, why does he talk so much about muffins? <laughs> this is the muffin chapter. <laughs> And to contextualize it a little bit, you'll see this in Tsongkhapa. Go back to Tsongkhapa's Lamrim, and you'll find it many, many other cases in Tibetan Buddhism, and back to earlier to, to Indian Buddhism. And you'll find it in Theravada traditions as well. It's this, uh, this um, oh, temperament analysis, or psychophysiological constitution analysis. Some people are more prone constitutionally to anger and hatred, just generally. You know, they're irritable sort. Temperament. Temperament. Some people are just prone to irritability, anger, and so forth. And so if they're to practice shamatha, what would be really good? Right? So it's, it's, a, it's a, per, a personality typology as it pertains to shamatha. Right? And I think there's something, like, I haven't memorized all of them, but there's something like five classes. There's certainly those who are very, very, very lustful. So I won't give all of them, but lust would be lots and lots of desire, not just for sex, but just really sensual, craving kind of people. Uh, so that's one type. Another person is very hateful, angry, hot-tempered, pissed-off kind of people. And then there's another one, people who are big on rumination, or vikalpa, 
lots and lots of, well, we all know about it. And then there's, I think there's two others. Um, and so for each of these, he gives a specific type of shamatha. Loving kindness practice, a meditation on impurity, meditation on mindfulness of breathing. Though for those who are especially prone to rumination, mindfulness of breathing. So he just unpacks that, and he unpacks it. This is a bit unique, or at least unusual. He unpacks this in the way not only to counteract your tendency to rumination to be able to achieve shamatha, but for this particular method, he said, oh, by the way, this is not only good for achieving shamatha. This take you all the way to our hot ship. Here are the 16, 16 phases. But that's why he's talking all about mindfulness of breathing, because it's the mindfulness of breathing chapter. Okay? Good, good, good. Oh, yeah, this is from Kathy. When I focus awareness on the body, I get feeling of bliss pervading the body. Okay, and now you've already made a lot of people jealous. They want to have a body transplant with you. If a is to lead to insight regarding selflessness of a person, what is the insight about bliss pervading the body? Oh, that's a very good question. And actually was addressed here, although not very clearly. It needs more unpacking, but mm, we went through the text fairly quickly. But this bliss, let's call this, let's call this pritti, among the five dhyana factors. Okay? It arises in the body, it arises in the mind. And so when you, when you practice vipassana, then this is exactly it. You're looking right into the nature. You're closely examining, closely applying mindfulness right to that bliss or that joy arising, whether it's arising in the body or the mind, attending to it very closely in a spirit of inquiry. In other words, not just identifying with and say, I feel good, but studying like a, as a phenomenon, like a scientist, and saying, what are the factors of origination? What are the factors of dissolution? Is it permanent, impermanent? Is it authentic joy, or is it merely a facsimile? Is, and then very importantly, like the final punchline, is as the bliss is arising, is there a self in it? Is, it? is there someone in there? Is it a person? And does it have an owner? Or is it simply bliss arising as bliss? So the, the, the three fundamental marks of existence, uh, the factors of origination, dissolution, uh, while, while maintaining that, it's almost like the mindfulness of breathing is your, your sailing vessel, right? Your vessel. And it's you know, rising, falling with the waves. But in the meantime, you're doing some you know, exploration. Maybe you're studying the stars. Maybe you're, maybe you're an oceanographer, really studying the ocean. But your vessel is rising, falling, rising, and falling. So the shamatha, the mindfulness of breathing aspect, is the nest, the couch, the, the home for it. And then you attend closely, applying your vipassana inspection to various things that arise, including the bliss. Now, you, you might recall in Vajrayana, that comes up big time, the union of bliss and emptiness. Remember? Bliss arises. Instead of just feeling, you know, I'm so glad, I'm so glad, and all that, instead of just identifying with it, you really, you observe the empty nature of the bliss. And that, now that way up here in Madhyamaka and Vajrayana, and so you're here at this level, you're seeing the three marks, impermanent, dukkha, and non-self. That's a really good start. When you bring this up to Mahayana, where we're going on Monday, we're already going to go to Madhyamaka on Monday, right? and the teachings on emptiness as they pertain to the four applications of mindfulness by way of Shantideva. But so if you're practicing Vajrayana, especially like in the Tibetan tradition, then pretty much you're practicing from the perspective of Madhyamaka. And so therefore, when you're experiencing the bliss, the bliss coming into the central channel, the, the four blisses and all of that, in each case, you're not just getting bliss, you're simultaneously realizing bliss and emptiness. And that's where the real liberation arises. Okay? For the time being. Yeah. You can always come back to it. Oh, yeah. Um, from the floor? Anything on the right-hand side? Yes, we'll go for Chucho first. 
Then we have more. Yeah, uh, when I listen to the Asanga text and the 16 faces, mm. then it, it connects me if that the Buddha thought uh, an explicit division between Vipassana and Shamatha? Yes. Or is this a, a package practice? Because this opened the window to some Tibetan teachers, if we can call it like that, to saying, no, that's Hinayana, or you need to purify before practicing Shamatha, or why are you practicing Shamatha instead of Sokchen, or... Well, I don't anybody know if this is a misconception. Or right. If people say, why are you practicing Shamatha instead of Dzogchen? <laughs> How many times shall I repeat myself? You know, I mean, just go back to Padmasambhava. There it is, natural liberation. One of the great classics of the earth dharmas of, of Padmasambhava. I don't know any Nyingmapa that says, oh no, that's, we don't accept that one. You know, this is it's really core to the whole tradition. And there it is. It couldn't get any clearer. He, he, Padmasambhava gives one Shamatha method after another, starting from the gross, ending in awareness of awareness. And he says, if you are introduced to Dzogchen, to Rikpa, if you're given the pointing out instructions, before having realized, having settled your mind in its natural state, then you are really going to be very prone to dogmatism and just latching onto the concepts without getting anything out of it at all. That's Padmasambhava. That's not me. And you should go back to the text and you can read it. And then you can read Gatrin Bush's commentary. So anybody think now, of course, if one is a simultaneous individual, if one is a superior inv- superior individual, you know, or a medium individual, medium faculty, you can gaze into space for three weeks and realize Rikpa. Then why are you messing around with Shamatha? You know, if that's if you're a meeting a middling individual. So if the Lamas is, you know, are saying, you know, if, if the Lamas are surrounded by a whole bunch of middle, middling faculty students. And they say, well, should we practice shamatha? They said, no, why should you bother that? Stare into space for three weeks. But if they've been studying with the Lama for month after month, year after year, haven't realized Rikpa, well, then they're not superior, they're not middling, they're, they're ordinary. And then do what Padmasambhava said. Do what Kamachamaramuchi said. Do what Dujum Lingba said. Do what Lerap Lingba said. And they all said the same thing. Oh, and by the way, what the Buddha said. That's why he taught Shila Samadhi Prajna. That's not Hinayana. That's for all of Buddhism. There's Vajrayana Shila, and there's Samadhi on all levels, and there's wisdom on all levels. So, it's incorrect. It's incorrect to say that generically, that somehow, oh, now that you're Dzogchen, you don't have to practice Shamatha. Great, if you're superior, middle, vakli. But if you're not, then you're not really practicing Dzogchen. You're doing exactly what Padmasambhava said not to do. You're being introduced to Rikpa without having prepared a suitable vessel. So it goes right to your head, which is to say conceptual mind, stays there, and you walk around with a sense, I'm a Dzogchen practitioner, and I'm not like those yucky Hinayanas. I think it's time to say the bullshit word. You know, that's really bullshit. Really nonsense. Yeah. But I think your question has a second part. Or does that do it? Yeah, if... The Buddha make a, a division, explicit division. This is shamatha. Oh yeah, this is absolutely, the, absolutely. The first four are shamatha. The final, final twelve are vipassana. There, and it's in the Satipatthana Sutta. You first start mindfulness of breathing. It's about shamatha. Then he goes into the four applications of mindfulness. But even the mindfulness of breathing is already venturing into the close application of mindfulness to the body, but as the breathing is taking place with the body. Right? 
So, yeah. I do find it quite astonishing. Because what I'm saying is just what the Buddha said, what Asanga said, what Shantideva said, what Padmasambhava said, Tsongkhapa said, Kamachamarambache, the list goes on and on and on. You know? And why so many people nowadays think, oh no, Shamatha is for stupid people. Well, okay, if you're, if you're one of the sharp and middle faculties, hallelujah, you're right. But I'm one of the stupid people, you know, dull faculties. And then for, and here's a really good question. I'm going to return to this tomorrow. Dujum Lingba, 13, 13 of his disciples achieved rainbow body. I don't know anybody in the Nima tradition who can test that. And that is my demonstration with Dujum Rinpoche, who as a meritocracy was voted by all the lamas to be the head of the whole Nima order. So that suggests a pretty good lineage there. And I don't know a single Nyingmapa that says, oh, Dujum Lingba, no, we don't follow him. Not one. Solid gold. Thirteen of his disciples seen rainbow body. Okay? And there's no way to read his mind terms on Dzogchen in any other way because it comes up so explicitly, especially in Vajra Essence, but in the other ones as well. I translated all of them. So explicitly, this is a step you cannot skip unless you're a person of superior medial faculties. Great, then jump to the end of the book. You know? But if you're not, there's no way. This is indispensable. And it should be intuitively obvious too. Really? You're going to bring all your excitation and laxity into Dzogchen and it's going to be fine? Why do you think that? But here's a question I'd pose, because there are a lot of people saying this. I say, good, okay, Dujum Lingba, 13 of his disciples achieved rainbow body, and it said that, that a thousand became Vidyadharas. How many of your disciples have achieved rainbow body? I think it's a fair question. How many of your disciples? Or among the people you know nowadays who are teaching just like you do, how many of their disciples have achieved rainbow body? He has 13. 13, 2, what's your score? You disagree with him? Then why should we go along with you and 13 of his disciples since he, his teachings worked and yours, frankly, aren't? How long do we need to wait, you know? 40 years? Isn't that long enough? Tibetan lamas have been teaching in the, in the big world for 40 years now. So where's the, rain, where's the rainbow bodies? 40 years of not teaching shamatha. 40 years of no rainbow bodies outside of Tibet. There might there be a connection. So I'm a bit tough. But it's just the toughness of Padmasambhava. It's not some Alan Wallace coming in with some new, new crazy idea. It's a really old, not crazy idea. That make your mind a suitable vessel. Treat the Dharma with some respect. I, mean, I, I think, frankly, it's just, um, this is my opinion. But if you go to a world-class restaurant that gives takeout, In other words, we just, went, we, we, just, we just went hypothetical. But it's like five stars, like $300 for a meal. You know. And they say, bring your own plate. <laughs> it's takeout. And you, and you come to this magnificent, world-class chef who's preparing you this incredible gourmet meal. And you say, please, dish it up. And he looks at your plate. And it's covered with garbage. It, you took it out of the sink without even washing it. You say, please put it right here. And he's looking at his meal. He's about to sit, And then he looks at you. Are you kidding me? Do you know where you've come? This is Dzogchen restaurant. <laughs> and you're bringing me this grubby, filthy, cockroach-ridden little plate filled with the slime balls of laxity and excitation. And you're telling me to put my plate, my, my meal, or my food on your plate? Are you out of your frigging mind? At least go home and wash your plate. And until then, don't even 
don't even come to my restaurant. I think that would be showing res respect to bring a clean plate and showing re some respect to, to bring a mind that's free of the five obscurations. Oh, yeah. This is from Steph. In relation to the first part of Asanga's text on breathing, he referred to the causes of inhalation and exhalation as propulsive karma or subtle vital energy prana. Is this what causes us to breathe automatically? That is, the process of drawing in air and expelling from our lungs while deep, deep asleep or triggering our first breath when we are born? Or is this involuntary process more physiological, that is, just part of the ANS um, brain-heart function. You know, I think it's an interesting question, and I suspect that it is, that he didn't just drop that propulsive karma bu business there just out of Buddhist doctrine or something. I suspect there's a real connection there. So I think so. Now, does this preclude brain activity and so forth? No, any more than there's competition. Okay, which one's right? The teachings on prana or the teachings on the nervous system and the brain and so forth? Which one's right? Because they're very different. They're both... They're they're both experience-based, but very different types of experience. One using all of the wonders of modern technology, looking at the brain, the nervous system from outside, lots and lots of knowledge. And the other one looking from the inside and lots and lots of knowledge about the, ch the chakras, the pranas, different types of prana and so forth. And so the obvious word to draw up here is complementary. That there are multiple pers perspectives on the same system looked at from a third-person perspective and a first-person. Right? So that's, I think, very non-sectarian, non-prejudicial, way of looking at this. And likewise, I don't see any real competition or incompatibility, this of course my view, uh, between the real science within Darwinian evolution, and there's a lot of really good science there, genetic mutation, adaptation to changing environments and so forth. There's a lot of really spectacular science, brilliant science. I don't see any incompatibility between that and then the Buddhist teachings on, on propulsive karma, past life influences that lead to the, you know, the kind of life, life forms we take and the kind of various qualities of our existence here in this lifetime, that there can be a, a compatibility between the two. And I, I was reading just about a week ago an article where some of the finest evolutionary biologists in the world were speculating, you know, what I think was that they're looking at about a one to two million year period, so relatively short in terms of the five billion year history of the planet and the three and a half billion year history of life on the planet. Um, but they, they were noting that there's just this strange and thus far, frankly, inexplicable, extremely rapid growth of the brain, the human brain, for, you know, as we go homo sapiens and then the various permutations of that until homo sapiens sapiens, so us for the last 100, 200,000 years. But just the, the incredible rapidity, the swiftness, which with the brain was getting larger, larger, larger. And just, they had no explanation for it. So they came up with one more speculation. I found it really limp. Like, okay, whatever. It was that we, that we get into a lot of fights. I mean, in essence, of conflict, and that makes our brains grow faster. Um, I mean, it, it was, I don't mean it, it was stupid. It wasn't stupid, but I just found it totally unpersuasive. And then it was countered by one other biologist that said, no, I got another idea. So right now, they're basically a bunch of philosophers. And that's not derogatory, just saying that they don't have any facts. So they're coming with one idea and defending their ideas, but they really just don't know. And likewise, I've, and I've asked some world-class Biologists at this point, evolutionarily speaking, why are we so smart? I mean, we just, you know, why did, from if, if, if we're here, by, if we're really biological organism, that's all there is to us, 
and our function is to survive and adapt to changing environments and, you know, and, and propagate. Um, we didn't really need an Einstein or anybody even with one-tenth of his intelligence. You just, how intelligent do you need to be to survive and procreate? The cockroaches are doing a really great job you know, without being incredibly smart as far as I can tell. And so they just don't have an explanation why we have so massively m much more intelligence, creativity, ingenuity than we possibly need for survival and procreation. They have no explanation for it. So I say, well, maybe that's because the explanation is not to be found entirely within biology. You can explain a lot, but maybe you should just be a little bit more modest, and maybe there are causal processes in nature that you can't measure because all you can measure is the physical, and this is where karma comes in. So the question came up earlier about you know, Mozart and the geniuses. Well, it's not just momentum. I mean, momentum could be one factor. Just like Shariputra and Moggallana practicing Dharma, 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 I mean, these geniuses, they hear one verse and they achieve nirvana. Um, but it's not just momentum. If we look into the complexities of karma, a single individual, Mozart, in who knows, it could have been 300 lifetimes ago, could have engaged, could have, this is all the hypothetical, but it's straight teachings of karma, could have engaged in some particular type of activity, accrued karma, that f the fruition of which would just be a blazing genius, specifically for music. But it does, it's not just momentum, momentum, momentum. That could also contribute. So it's simply to say that karma is, in the Buddhist view, worldview, it's absolutely part of nature. These are natural processes. They just don't happen to be physical, but they interface all the way along with the physical. And they could also be very much implicated in uh, the fact that we breathe while we're deep asleep and so forth. And then finally, a little bit more time, is there any reason why throughout history males seem to be more prominent in Buddhism? Is it harder for females to achieve shamatha because we are good at multitasking? I don't believe that for a second. It's a perfectly good question. But no, I, and, and moreover, is it harder for females to achieve shamatha? Well, I've just been teaching it for 36 years. And I find, if anything, I mean, I think it's too, too small a data pool. I've only been teaching for 36 years and not that many people. But if anything, it seems to me the women are doing a bit better. I'm just, that's just a straight observation. And especially in terms of getting to the highest levels, seven, seven and eight out of nine stages, all the ones that I've taught, women, who've gotten that far, all of them. So no, I see no disadvantage whatsoever. And I'm not all that persuaded that women are just genetically better at multitasking. Maybe, maybe so, it could be. I'm not against that idea. But I'd want to see some really clear, compelling evidence for that. You know. And as for the other, uh, I think it has to do with just the broader context of humanity on the planet. And that is virtually all, not every single one, but virtually all societies everywhere are patriarchal. And so... And we know that in the United States Congress, something like 17, I mean, they're, they're massively outnumbered, women. And that's 2010, 2012. You know, they're massively outnumbered in the Congress. Uh, in business, the highest levels, massively outnumbered. You know? Now, there are areas such as medicine, law, and so forth, and now in graduate schools, I know this from UC Berkeley, for example, uh, heavy pr predominance across the boards, medicine, law, business, many more women going into graduate school than men. So now they're actually tilting way over onto that side, genetically b 
bias. They're, you know, there's more of them, which means they're going to be, within one generation, I think we'll see more and more just floating up the highest echelons of medicine, business, law, and so forth and so on. Uh, but the short answer there is, I think it really boils down to something rather simple. Men have bigger bodies. We're stronger overall. And um, if you're dealing with tigers, men will do a better job overall. Tiger, th things that threaten you, big animals. Or if you want to kill a big animal, the man can run faster. That's why the Olympics, they don't have the men and one, women running together. The men would all win all the races. That's tough. Even in tennis, they have men's tennis, women's tennis. Otherwise, you wouldn't have any women champions because they'd all be slaughtered by the top 10 men. You know? That's just the way it is. But that's physical. Mental, forget about it. There's just no evidence at all that men are smarter. But we're bigger and we're stronger. And so for the brute level over society, most of human society has been on the brute level, take, you know, trying to ward off nature, trying to survive, procreate, deal with just the basics of getting by hedonically. Having a big, bigger body helps, so that the leaders of the tribe tend to be men, because they can kill the other men, whereas the women, harder for them to kill the men. They're smaller. You know? So given that, just, and this is, we're talking about you know, 100,000, 200,000 years, and that's even before all of our predecessors who are prior Homo sapiens sapiens. It's an awful lot of momentum of men being the alpha characters in a tribe. You know? uh, it goes for the other primates as well. You know, there are exceptions here and there, but pretty much it's men. And so when you have, evolutionarily speaking, and then socially speaking, thousands of years of momentum of men always being predominant, because they're bigger and stronger. They're stronger leaders because they can beat the other tribe. They can beat the big animals. They can kill the big animals and eat them and so forth. Uh, and the lighter weight stuff, women take care of, and they do a really good job. And so then say, okay, uh, balance of power is here. Women take care of the home. Men will go out and do everything out there. Out there. Um, that's just an awful lot of momentum behind that. So at the time of the Buddha, uh, I've mentioned a number of times there were these shramanas, these shramanas, these wandering ascetics. Because they just got in the jungle and they live on a meal a day and they would devote them. They were all men. They were all men. Right? And then during the time of the Buddha, he's got these thousands of disciples and so many gaining high states of realization, jhanas and stream entry and so forth and so on. And so then the question was put to him, do women have the same capacity? Can women also achieve these same states? And it looks to me, now opinion coming, opinion coming, it looks to me like we're, we, we have to deal with two aspects of the Buddha. On the, on, on the one hand, was he a man who was born in India in a royal caste who was dealing with people embedded in Indian society 2,600 years ago? Is that true or false? That's not a truth we can ignore that he was in society, he was in a particular society at a particular time in which there was an enormous amount of momentum for patriarchal bias. Was he also awakened? Was he a man who was completely free of attachment to gender and all that kind of stuff? I will say yes. But this means he's got two things going. An, an awakening that is timeless. Just not locked in any time or place. And he's teaching people who are absolutely timed and, and localized. And he has to teach in a way, since he wants to be a benefit, that they will remain open and receptive. So he showed resistance. There's no question about it. He showed resistance at the beginning to letting women do something that was unprecedented, as far as I can tell, in all of Indian history, and that's a lot of history, of women becoming shramanas, women becoming taking ordination, devoting themselves totally to spiritual practice to achieve liberation. 
As far as I can tell, it never happened before. And he allowed it with some resistance. But then they put to, to him, do we have the ability or not? And he said, yes. Then do you have any reason not to let us be ordained? No. So there it was. So, but there's no, this is complex. There's no question about it. Uh, but why are there so few women? Because Buddhism has always flowed to places that were dominated by men. China, Tibet, India, Mongolia, etc., etc. Oh, the United States, Europe, South America, Mexico. They're all dominated by men. It's still true. You know, among Western teachers, we have some really good Westerners, Western women now. But I think it's still male-dominated. Look at the books. Just look at the book. I think you're going to find more males. And it's not because they weren't allowed to. We don't, we're not that crappy. Say, oh, you're women. We won't publish you. Nobody does that. We're not that stupid. So it's just an awful lot of momentum. Right? I think that's what it really boils down to. And having said that, I'll end on this note. It's 602 is that within this culture, and now here's something embedded in time, embedded in place, with an enormous amount of momentum behind it, the culture of Tibet okay, has an awful lot of uh, tradition behind it, in every way, spiritually, socially. It's, got a, it's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, Tibetan civilization as a distinct civilization, not Chinese, not Mongolian, not Indian, and very patriarchal, not, mean, not viciously so. Women could divorce their husbands, they could own property. They had a number of rights. There's, uh, there's, there's some good, good, good studies of this. That it, was it patriarchal? No question about it. But not comparatively speaking, not that bad. Comparative like Europe, for example, and other places. Right? But nevertheless, very patriarchal. Almost all the lamas were men. There's no question about it. Right? Then you hear of a woman, oh, Machik Lapkidoma, oh, Yeshi Sogel, oh, oh, oh. Yeah, but like, there's 100 to 1. You know? That's the society's patriarchal. That's it. The people wanted men to lead them. And so if a, if a lama is coming back and he wants to be a benefit, he's going to come back to a gender that people really are, re are ready to respect and not to think, where's your child? You know? But given all of that, a tremendous amount of momentum, and which means also inertia, a lot of inertia, a lot of conservatism. A part of it was, you know, led to their downfall with the Chinese invasion. If there had not been so much inertia, who knows? The 13th Dalai Lama gave him a great big warning. Shape up now or hell will be coming to Tibet. They didn't shape up. They didn't shape up. Too much inertia from the aristocracy and the monastic tradition in particular. I can't say it's their fault, but they did not rise to the challenge. I think that's just a fair statement. And it's one I say with sadness, not judgmentalism. But given all of that and having lived with Tibetans from 1971, so only 12 years after they came out, and see, just watch what's happened since I showed up in 1971. My showing up was insignificant, but that's just when I, when I happened to be there. You know. From that time, oh, I showed up, therefore all the rest happened. Cause and effect, right? <laughs> Makes sense to me. Tibetans, I'll take my bow now. Um, but just looking at that time frame, about 40 years, I find it, frankly, utterly remarkable how quickly they've changed. Now, these are the Tibetans in India how quickly they've changed. And it's from the inside out of how many women have, have, how much change in 40 years. Considering that 1,200 years of Buddhism before, in 40 years, now we have women geishas. We have, we have women leading uh, in leadership roles all over the place, in multiple places, getting good education, high education. They're deprived of nothing. Uh, there's just no education they can't have access to. So have they achieved parity? No. But then I don't know of a single country on the planet where there's parity 
where you look in the positions of highest power, wealth, and so forth, say, oh, wow, it's 50-50. Does anybody know a country where that's true? I don't. So is it true among the Tibetans in exile? No, but oh, would you not agree, Andrea? It's been quite remarkable how much. And they are not stopped. They're not saying, okay, now that's, that's enough women, now pipe down. Not at all. So I think they're actually changing far more rapidly than the United States, where in the, it, one century ago women could not vote. The United States of America, no vote for women. Why would they want to vote? They would just vote with their, with their menfolk anyway. That was the lame excuse. There's no need for them to vote. They'll just vote like their, their husbands. That's a century ago. It sounds like brain dead. But that was only a century ago. So I think there's real hope. Oh, good. That's all.